Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, the podcast about, well, basically all things assisted reproduction, right? You know, we, we, we've expanded. We talk about everything. So I am Jennifer White, and I am here with my host and sister extraordinaire, Ellen Trackman. Yes. And I think this is a given. It's known. But because our listenership is expanding a little bit abroad, I will say that we are in the United States. And so, of course, our perspective yes. tend to come from that. But we do have the honor frequently of interviewing those who are not in the United States and have different perspectives, including mm-hmm. one where we um, talked to Janan Brownell, who is writing a book that she, so she's a journalist, and looked at the laws and the culture and all these different elements of assisted reproductive technology and surrogacy specifically in so many different countries. And it's, I mean, it's an the first draft that we got to see you is amazing. And I'm yes. constantly amazed by the different, the ways cultures deal with assisted reproductive technology. Um, a- a- anything truly surprising to you? Well, one that we were just talking about recently that I don't know if it's true still, but apparently as of fairly recently in the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates, it was not legal to freeze embryos, which is absolutely fascinating to me that that, that I mean, right. how do you do IVF without freezing embryos, but you yeah. did freeze eggs and sperm. Um, so that was really, really different and very. Right. So it's basically like single attempt every single time, huh? That's right. amazing. Yes. Right. Um, and with, oh. you know, statistics of how things kind of go down in numbers, that must be very difficult. Yeah. Oh, it has to be totally nerve wracking. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's incredible. So I, you know, I think without further ado, we should listen to our talk with Janan and her story, her international intrigue and about her hopefully upcoming book. Welcome Janan Brownell to the podcast. Janan, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So you have such an amazing story and you've done so much in-depth research on surrogacy. It's hard to know where to start, but I feel like the best place to start is to give a little bit of background about yourself and your own discovery of this area. Sure. So I am a London-based American journalist. I'm originally from Michigan, and I've been a journalist my entire career. I worked um, on staff at CNN and Newsweek, um, and I've been freelance for the last 14 years. And I write mostly about arts, culture, education, and development. Um, And I uh, sort of uh, came to surrogacy because uh, my husband and I uh, were sort of suffering from infertility. Um, and so I can tell you the story about sort of that. But uh, actually, after our kids were born, um, I wanted to uh, think about writing a book about it. And it took me a couple of years and then decided that I wanted to not only tell my story, sort of the our, our surrogacy journey, but to also sort of take a journalistic deep dive um, and look at sort of surrogacy across the globe, because I don't really see, um, I've never seen anything written kind of from a big picture global perspective. So I wanted to do that. So that's kind of what um, 
my book that Huge I'm working task. on. <laughs> and I like we went ahead and um gave away the ending. You said after oh, your children yeah. are born. So people know so if anyone was worried or tense, you now can like relax, like there are children at the end of this dramatic story. So that that can be helpful. And if you don't mind sharing a little bit about you do have a very glamorous life as a freelance journalist <laughs> involving a lot of travel. Do you mind telling a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I um as I mentioned, I write a lot about um arts and culture. So I um get to travel quite a bit. Um, being based in London, I um, sort of, you know, have before COVID used to travel quite frequently, um, you know, all across Europe and also to Africa. Um, I wrote my first book, which hasn't been published yet, but fingers crossed, um, about a youth orchestra in a slum in Nairobi. So I spent a lot of time in Kenya over the last couple of years and just have written about sort of arts and culture from, you know, places from, you know, Fiji and Indonesia to, um Ghana and Russia and uh, yeah, so I've kind of traveled all over and oftentimes use, uh, you know, use an excuse of a, you know, a story to kind of just go explore another country. So it's, um, I can't wait till COVID ends so I can get back on the road and uh, start start doing my, my journalism slash uh, sort of fun holidays again. Awesome. So obviously, you know, we, we've given away the ending, but let's go back to the beginning. Like, how yeah. did your infertility journey start, progress, and, and go? And what led you, especially here to surrogacy? Sure. So when I was 35, I went to my GP here in London and I said, you know, I'm really interested in maybe freezing my eggs. Do you think I should? And she said, no, the technology's really not great. You know, don't worry about it. And then four years later, when I turned 39, she said to me, remember when I told you not to freeze your eggs? Well, forget what I said. You should freeze your eggs. And in the UK, um, you there was a law, I don't know so if it's still the case, where you had to freeze your eggs by the time you were 40. And so I had, you know, a very small window. So a month before I turned 40, um, I had five eggs frozen. And I dubbed those my, in case of emergency, break um, glass eggs. Because I was like, I was just put them, you know, to freeze them and right. hope for the best. And then um, I was still single. And a couple of years later, I decided to, I wanted to have a child. And so I... Um, decided to do that with a sperm donor. Um, and I found a sperm clinic in Denmark um, and had a couple attempts, didn't get pregnant and then did get pregnant. But unfortunately, um, I had a miscarriage at eight weeks. Um, and so a couple months after that, I was going to do it again. And that's when I re-met the man that became my future husband. Um, and so we we kind of dated I like the, years the re- Yes. <laughs> I say, re-met, yeah. Yeah, re met. No, we had dated briefly sort of in the early 2000s. And then we sort of, you know, met up again, like 11 plus years later. So anyway, um, and then we decided, you know, we wanted to, you know, try for a family quite quickly. And so I still had the, the medication from, you know, when I was going to do the next egg freezing or sorry, the next um, try to get pregnant with the sperm donor. So, um, got rid of that sperm donor, tried with my then husband, then boyfriend, now husband didn't work. And that began a journey of, um, several years trying to get pregnant. We did, you know, everything from, you know, uh, fresh transfers of embryos to freezing embryos to, I remember one time my fabulous gynecologist, Sarah Matthews here in London, who's the most glamorous gynecologist on the planet. She um, flushed my fallopian tubes. We, I mean, we did all sorts of things and uh, nothing, nothing seemed to work. And then in this, in the meantime, my husband and I got married. He's from Serbia. He had to go back to Serbia for several months. And so we tried with the uh, four of the embryo, I mean, two times each, but we tried with those embryos. Um, and each time I didn't get pregnant. And, um, 
in July of, I think it was 2015, um, I was doing my last sort of fresh transfer. I didn't realize at the time, but it was going to be my last, uh, last one. And, and I, I call it my Wimbledon meltdown because the day before I was supposed to do the transfer, we'd already, you know, taken the eggs out and they'd made the embryos and they'd, you know, gone to blastocyst and et cetera. Um, I'd had to do, you know, do trigger the overtrial shot at a Taylor Swift concert in Hyde Park, which was a whole nother, <laughs> Again, a whole nother very, story, but very you know, glamorous. Yes. Very glamorous. And people were like, what is that girl doing in the corner? As she's like singing, you know, like, uh, we will never get back together. But anywho, um, so I'm at Wimbledon with one of my friends and I got a call from Dr. Matthews. And so I sort of run down the staircase and, she says to me, you know, did your shot go well and blah, blah, blah. And she said, by the way, I just want to sort of prepare you that if this doesn't work out, um, I think we need to accept that you have unexplained infertility. And it was just really kind of crazy coincidence timing because as she's saying these words to me, like Rafael Nadal had just like hit some amazing shot. So everybody in center court's like, yay. And I start like sobbing, you know, in these, you know, under the cement stairwell. So it was sort of this very juxtaposition of, you know, like, thousands of people cheering and I'm just like sobbing. So anyway, I go in the next day and of course I didn't get pregnant. Um, and so, Do you, um, you don't think people just thought you weren't a fan of him? Like you were, yeah, yeah they're like, why is she crying? So because emotional like about crying. tennis. Yeah, exactly. She really feels, and I used to actually write about tennis. So people probably could have thought that, that, but anyway, um, <laughs> So that summer, um, I just was starting to think, well, what are we going to do? Because we've still at that at this point, we still had some genetic material left. We had the five frozen eggs. We still had two frozen embryos. And I, you know, we thought briefly about adoption, but um, I had years previously spent some time um, volunteering in an orphanage in Russia. And I, you know, while it was an amazing experience, I realized that I just didn't have the toolkit to deal with children who sort of might have more difficult backgrounds. And in the UK, unfortunately, with adoption, oftentimes you don't get infants, you get children who are older. So, I mean, for a lot of reasons, adoption just wasn't going to work for us. And plus we are older and there's different laws. You know, I think at that point I was like 44 or something. And, you know, so it was just like, there were issues. So anywho, um, we started looking at surrogacy and luckily and around the time, oh, like yeah. going yeah. into those thoughts about surrogacy, there's just like such a difference in the international viewpoint of surrogacy. So, you know, being American in America, it's, you know, it's normal, like, okay, that is an mm -hmm. option. I mean, not obviously there's disagreement within the country as well, but for yeah. the most part, it's accepted. It's a, it's a choice to go as an option for building your family, but in most of Europe, and I was amazed, I was talking, I think it was, uh, embryologists to this, this mm -hmm. audience and those from Europe were like, Oh, compensate, like, okay, maybe surrogacy, yeah. but that's questionable and compensated for sure. No. And very questionable. And I'm curious, like with your life kind of living on both sides, like growing up in America, living in England for a long time, were you automatically with that American mindset or had it kind of crossed over? What were you thinking at that point? Well, at that point, so I have two friends, they're a Israeli gay couple. And around the time I was just beginning to think about surrogacy, they had already started their surrogacy journey in the US. And they were the first people, I mean, very middle-class, you know, normal, you know, couple, they weren't like super wealthy. Cause you know, there's that stereotype, right. That, you know, it's celebrities and like multi, you know, billionaire Silicon Valley people that can afford surrogacy, which is obviously a stereotype and it's not, it's not true. So they were kind of the first, and they were doing their surrogacy in the U S because in Israel, um, at this point, well, no, well, I can get into that later, but, um, when they were looking into it, gay men can't do surrogacy in Israel. Um, that law has recently the Supreme Court ruled on that last year. I can talk more about that later. But anyway, at the time they couldn't do it. So I 
sort of said, well, maybe I'll do it in the States as well. And also, I mean, I have dual citizenship. Um, I have a British passport, but I'm American, if that makes sense. So it was never a thought of not doing it in the States. Plus, the idea was that, you know, we would have um, the surrogacy, the, the children born in the States, and then we'd go back to my mom's house in Michigan while we waited for the passports and everything to come through. So it was always something, you know, I, I never looked anywhere else. I think maybe briefly looked at the UK, but it just seemed very, you know, confusing. And also it was sort of the waiting list was forever. And I just sort of thought, you know, so no, to, you, know, long you, didn't short, no. you didn't feel conflicted about whether surrogacy was like an okay practice or. Um, no, I didn't really feel conflicted. I mean, the, the, the research I had done at the time um, was that, you know, um, I hadn't really deep, deep dove yet at that point. But one of the things that I was really keen, because I've always been interested in sort of, you know, empower, women's empowerment and girls education and, you know, making sure that women you know aren't exploited and have agency. And, you know, I've written a lot about those kinds of things. And so one of the things that I was very much, you know, keen to look into was um, when I was sort of looking at different agencies in the U.S., not only checking how intended parents, how IPs viewed different agencies, but also how surrogates viewed agencies. And so for me, the decision that we made in terms of the agency that we went with was they seemed to have really positive feedback from surrogates. Um, and, you know, and as you know, um, and obviously you guys interviewed Zeusa Barron a few weeks ago. I mean, she talks about, you know, surrogate mothers online, the, um, the website that she did lots of research into and, and, American surrogates are very empowered and don't sort of hold back. And so it was really, you know, like I sort of felt like, okay, these women are pretty cool, you know, like they're pretty like on top of this and they're debating interesting things. And so for me, I kind of thought, you know, the U S um, I'm really, I was really impressed with sort of, you know, a lot of the chat that was happening that I kind of got involved in um, to sort of, you know, check out what the situation was in the States. Okay. So you went forward. How did so? Our journey, so we ended up going with Circle, um, and um, again, one of the reasons that we went with them. Obviously, they're one of the larger agencies, but um, you know, they had a lot of positive feedback from surrogates. We spoke to John Weltman and his husband, um, who are the founders of Circle. Had a good conversation with them, and one of the things that I said to them was, um, "I'm really keen to make sure that whoever we work with. Um, I mean, again, I'm a nerd about education, and I was like, I'd really like to work with somebody who, you know, has, uh, you know." Uh, at least, you know, some, some, you know, college background. Um, I don't know why I was so particular about that, but I was, but anywho, um, so they, uh, I, I was just thinking like, maybe you are so adamant about her having higher education. Um, just kind of that thought of like avoiding exploitation that she is well-educated, knows what she's doing, you know, not exactly. in and also feeling, you know, and this is something that, you know, our surrogate, you know, Julie, who's our surrogate and I have talked about sort of later on. But anyway, yes. I mean, one of the things was I wanted to make sure that whoever we decided to work with was empowered and also could really articulate, you know, because, you know, women who become surrogates have to do have a lot of blowback. I'm sure just, you know, if you're at the grocery store and somebody's like, oh, when are you expecting the baby? And if you get into a conversation, you know, it's kind of so I'd want, I wanted to have somebody who was very confident with their decision, but also able to kind of really feel that they could push back, you know, if people were kind of not being really cool about it, you know what I mean? And so I think that was sort of important for me. So anyway, um, they matched us with um, one couple, which we decided not to work with. Um, I can't remember really the reasons why. And then they matched us with Julie and Chad, um, who lived in Illinois. And just to say quickly, I mean, originally, before I really started doing research, I wanted to have a surrogate who was in Michigan. 
Um, and mm. we were told, and we were told by Circle, they're like, yeah, that's not going to work because surrogacy is like illegal in Michigan. And at the time, I didn't really look into it. And only when I started working on this book yeah. and realizing like the really important history that Michigan plays in surrogacy and surrogacy law, I realized why that was. And at the time, at the time we're recording. So right now there's like this hot yep. news case about this couple that went through yep. surrogacy and their genetic full parents, intended parents, and the courts are saying, nope, you're not parents to this child born by surrogacy. Yep. So I, I'm so confused why they chose yeah. Michigan no, with the law being so bad, but it definitely showed that they're, the law is being upheld, that they're not going to tolerate surrogacy yep. in Michigan at the Unfortunately, moment. Unfortunately, yeah, very much the case. But uh, yeah, very sad. And I actually got in touch with Stephanie Jones, who you guys have interviewed interviewed before as well, who I actually interviewed for my book and just sent her a link and said, I'm sure you've seen this, but just, you know, keep this in, you know, in your, put this in your hat, you know, anyway, but um, yeah, so uh, yeah, so anyway, so they were based in Illinois and we, you know, did a Skype with them and had a really great conversation. And it was also just in terms of convenience, again, because we were planning to go back to my mom's house um, as we did after the kids were born it kind of worked out, you know, logistically, um, for us as well. And so, um, then we started all the, you know, the paperwork and, you know, you know, all of that stuff, which takes a long time. And then, um, we, I'm trying to remember, like, it's so funny now. Cause it's like, at the time you're living it, it's so intense and crazy. And then after a while you're like, oh, I forget when did that happen? But, um, well, I have to say something that stood out to me that you were so open about in your book, or at least the draft that we got to look yeah. at, um, was like the bumps in the road in your own relationship and sharing yeah. that. And I feel like that's not something that everyone is so open about that you did have a point where you were like, you paused it and were reconsidering and had to tell your surrogate, like, hold on, we're, we're not sure where we are. Yeah, exactly. We were, um, I mean, my husband, funny enough, I mean, not funny enough, but my husband and I are actually in the process of getting a divorce right now, sadly, but you know, it's fine. We, oh, we're getting along and it's I'm okay. So but sorry. you know, we've always, so, you know, it is, it is what it is, but yeah, we always had a very tumultuous relationship. You know, he's from Serbia. I'm American, lots of cultural differences, et cetera. And I think the infertility, while it wasn't a major factor, it did have somewhat of a toll on our relationship, just the stress is, you know, infertility is in general. And so we, um, you know, yeah, exactly. At one point we got back in touch with Julie and said, listen, we're going to have to pause this because we're not sure where we're going. Like, we're just kind of, you know, um, having a really difficult time and we don't want to waste your time. And, and we, you know, want to make sure that when we, you know, really start this process, everything's going to be, you know, going okay. And she was very cool about it. And she, you know, she's like, yeah, no worries. And, and, and that was fine. And in the end, you know, um, we decided we, we, you know, worked, worked whatever issues out that we had. And um, Julie was keen, you know, to, to still work with us. And so um, we kind of restarted the, the process. Um, and then we, let's see, I'm trying to remember, we started the first, uh, so we obviously with our contract, we had, you know, three tries with Julie. And um, the first time that we tried, uh, we used the, you know, emergency, you know, break glass eggs. Um, and unfortunately, um, those didn't work. And, and I actually want to circle back and say that you said, obviously, we tried three times. That's actually a question I get a lot. So I would actually just like to throw that out into the public sphere that most surrogacy contracts say that you will try three times. And like, so when you've been through it, you're suddenly you're like, oh, oh, yeah, you know, it's obvious now. But for a lot of people who are starting off, it's not from the start. They're like, what happens if we get through once? Are we out all this money and we have to start fresh from scratch? And so until you get there, that, that's something I'm like, I just want to throw that right on out there as a kind of education piece for people that 
but usually you do actually contract to try multiple times with people. And I think so many people just expect it to take the first time that, you yeah. know, technology is good and it, it does for so many, but there's also yeah. just that probabilities that it doesn't for a lot of people too. No, that's a great point. And it was, I didn't realize, I mean, it, it makes sense that you would have, you know, a certain, a stipulation as to how many tries you can, you can do. And right. so, um, so yeah, so the first time didn't work. Um, second time we used, we had shipped out, um, those two eggs, frozen, uh, sorry, frozen embryos from London to our clinic in LA. Um, there was kind of a drama where we thought we had a third cause I had done a, another transfer out in California and it hadn't worked, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but yeah, so then she did get pregnant, um, and things seemed to be cruising along. We were really excited, you know, whatever. And then, um, at eight weeks she miscarried and I write about this a lot in the book. And it was actually very cathartic for me to write about this, um, that I was in Tanzania actually working on a, um, a story about girls' education. And I was visiting with these, you know, girls who were, you know, just uh, in very dire um, situations who were getting their uh, schooling fees paid for by this really great organization called CamFed. Anyway, so when I found out that she'd had a miscarriage, um, I, it was kind of, it, it felt so remote to me because I was so far away. I wasn't, you know, back home in London with my husband and I was just kind of so, and, and it was kind of, I don't want to say good, that sounds weird, but like, it was just, you know, to just be in such a different place and to really, yeah, you know, be talking to yeah. And to be like talking to these young women who had gone, have gone through so much just to go to school, I thought, okay, like this is my perspective and let me just kind of, you know, like ground myself back to my center. And, you know, so it was, it was very sad. It was very upsetting, but, you know, being there and, and sort of, you know, um, it, it kind of helped me to kind of work through it. And that was our last genetic material. So then we knew that we had to work with um, a, an egg donor and that took a lot of me getting my head around that, um, which yeah. I think a lot of women, you know, probably, I'm not probably, Absolutely. I'm sure most women, <laughs> um, it takes, it takes some time to kind of get your head around that. So anyway, we then, um, went back and went to circle. We found an egg donor that we really loved. She went out, you know, got, you know, froze some eggs. My husband went out, did what he needed to do. And then we found out that, um, four out of the five, um, embryos had chromosomal problems. So then we were like, oh my God. So our yeah. doctor in LA, Dr. Sahakian, who, you know, he's many things, but he's very straightforward. And he finally said to me, he's like, listen, you know, he, this had been already like a year plus that we've been dealing with all this. He's like, don't worry about picking the perfect egg donor. He's like, let's find somebody who's done this before, who, you know, can, you know, it has, you know, guaranteed that, you know, she's got, you know, good good fertility and you know don't worry your previous, about your previous choice was a first-time donor i take it so it was first-time donor and it was like we had all these things in common and it was like yeah. you know she loved musical theater and i'm like a total like you know Broadway nerd, theater. And, right? right right so it was like me. i was like i like hamilton too oh you yeah. and everyone else <laughs> <laughs> she loved to travel i mean it was just like so it was like it felt like it was meant to be and so in the end we ended up working with an egg donor who had worked with dr sahakian before and we, um, I wanted to do an open donation, um, which means for people who aren't, you know, aware of what that is, you can do um, anonymous, semi-open and open. And I just wanted to have a chance to speak with her. And as a journalist, being a very curious person, that was really important to me. So we spoke a couple of times and she was based um, in, a, in a Great Lakes state, let's put it that way. So there was definitely a connection, um, a 
a connection to to where I grew up. So that was kind of cool. Um, and uh, yeah, she we got I can't remember the number of eggs, but you know, really great donation. Um, and in the end, we uh, there were I think we had I can't remember, but anyway, we told um, we told the clinic put in the you know the the best scoring. I don't want to say the best scoring female and male, but like the ones that seem to be the healthiest, you know, um, and uh, let's see how we go. And at that point, I mean, as many people who've gone through infertility will know, you sort of feel like it's not going to work. Like I was like, whatever, like it's not going to work. We're going to have to sign up again with Julie for a fourth time. You know, I was kind of like at that point, I just, you know, I, my, my hands were off the wheel. And then she got pregnant <laughs> and I was like, wait, what, you know, like, but yeah, I just expected things to go wrong. You know, I was like, what's going to go wrong. What's going to go wrong. And while nothing went wrong with her pregnancy, um, like a month and a half in we, our house caught on fire in London. Oh so my God. We, we had to move out of our house. We had to rebuild the whole house. It was this whole drama. And in the end it was probably maybe a good thing because I really, you know, just like let Julie, you know, I gave her like free reign. I was like, I can't deal with, you know, all of this stuff right now. I'm going to, and she's very like, she's awesome. She's just like super smart, super proactive. And she just like ran with it, you know? And so I was like, you do what you have to do. Let's keep in touch, but I got to get my house ready. You know what I mean? And so it ended up I gotta, working. I have to have a place to yeah. bring these babies home to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was really traumatic. I mean, having, it was a really, you know, traumatic, you know, thing to have this fire. And so anyway, so, um, and then, you know, in July, we were back in Michigan and decided to meet up with Julie and Chad in Chicago. And we went to a Chicago Cubs game. And that was the first time that we actually met in person. And it was like, it was great. Like it was weird, obviously, but it was also like, and I remember her, coming down the stairs at Wrigley Field and it's like she was like kind of waddling already even though she was only like 12 weeks and I'm like oh my god she's got my babies in her belly like it was the weirdest you know um so anyway so that was kind of you know and and then um everything went fine I went you know we uh I came back to Illinois for the 22 week scan everything was looking good um they were slightly concerned that my son might have a problem with his heart but it turned out there was just a shadow on the sonogram or something anyway um and uh yeah they were born in january uh 2018 they just turned three last week actually i had a boy and a girl um yes yes and they are you know downstairs right now like throwing play-doh at my nanny and like screaming and like you know just being three nagers as you know only three nagers can be so in the end it turned out to be you know a happy story but it was and i always say these were always the kids I was supposed to mother, you know, all the trauma and the sadness and all of the, you know, like, I, I, I mean, the time they're supposed to be born. I like the, yeah. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And I feel like, you know, all of the things that, you know, there were so many times we could have stopped or we could have, you know, said, forget it or whatever. But I feel like my kids spirits or whatever was like in the ether and they were like, keep going, keep going, you know? And so these, these kids um, were always the one, you know, they were always supposed to be my kids and I was always supposed to be their mom. So I really oh. do feel that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So most people then kind of move on with their lives, but you use your journalism skills and you're like, I am going to find out everything possible about surrogacy, not just in the U S but everywhere else. How, how did you come to that decision and how did you start? Well, so as I mentioned, I'd written a book before. And so I have a a wonderful um, Irish book agent named Marianne Don O'Connor. And last year, right before sort of COVID lockdown here in the UK, 
she and I were discussing my other book and, and she said, by the way, you know, cause I told her that the kids were born via surrogacy and that, you know, maybe one day I might want to explore that. And she said, you know, would you be interested in kind of writing about that now? Are you at that point where you feel like you could? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I think I could now. And actually it was great because, you know, with COVID, you know, my freelancing completely died. So it was kind of like, it gave me, <laughs> a ti- it was good timing, right? <laughs> it, was, it was great timing. So anyway, and then also, you know, I, um, as I mentioned before, I used to work at Newsweek when it was still kind of owned by the Washington Post. And my our international editor at the time was Fried Zakaria, who now has a show on CNN. And anyway, when he was our editor, he was all about global. Everything had to be global. You know, it couldn't be a trend in one country. It had to be a trend in at least three countries. So I've always kind of been, I don't know if you'd say a globalist, but I've always liked to look kind of big picture. Um, and so for me, it just seemed like a very natural thing to write a book that kind of not only married, you know, my experience, which, you know, really in hindsight, you know, it's not a dramatic story. And it was dramatic for me, but it's not like, you know, Bud Lake, who you guys had on the show a few weeks ago, whose horrible experience in Thailand with his, you know, the birth of his daughter. Stuck but, there for over yeah, a year. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was like, you know, so I didn't, and I thought, you know, who needs another memoir about surrogacy? I mean, they're definitely needed and desired and they're great to have, but I just thought, what can I add to that? So anyway, so I just thought, let me do something looking at sort of a lot of these global um, conversations around surrogacy. Um, and so that's kind of where, the idea for the book came. And so I've covered, you know, you know, I've been looking, I mean, literally everywhere. I was deep diving this morning about surrogacy in Ghana. So, you know, as you, wow. <laughs> um, you know, I've been trying to cover lots of, lots of things in the book, but that's kind of where that came from. And so I've been spending, I've spent, you know, the last nine months, um, I've interviewed something like over 75 people, including the both of you, you guys have been <laughs> amazing resources to me. And I really, not only do I love your podcast, but you guys have just been such a you know, fountain of wonderful information, but um, yeah. And so I've just, I've got two more chapters to go and uh, yeah. And we record kind of, all of our interviews. So you get to hear all of our interviews. So hundred plus. Yeah, <laughs> which is amazing. And actually, no, it's been great because I, I've literally, um, I've, I've tapped into that and, and a number of people, um, I'm sure when you guys read the book, you were like, wait, did she get those? Did she find them through us? Cause I did. I'm like, oh, they were on. Yeah. So definitely, it's been a really and great- vice versa. They I was just say, turnabout is fair play. You send us that's people true. all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I'm probably always like, hey, I've got somebody else. So anyway, so that's kind of what the the, the book is is kind of looking at. So um, yeah, it's I been fascinating. Love, and given all your research, I would love to hear how if someone was like, explain to me surrogacy across the world. Like, how do you how would you summarize that? Well. So I'm going to geek out here for a minute, so bear with me. But one of the things that's really interesting is just how different the U.S. is versus the rest of the world. So obviously in the U.S., and I mean, you're going to hear what I'm saying, and you're going to think I'm Steve Schneider, because a lot of this comes from him. Um, and I know that you, you guys have interviewed him before, too. But, you know, there are a lot of statutes um, and, and amendments and Supreme Court decisions that sort of, you know, play into the surrogacy rules that um, different states, you know, interpret in, in the U.S. Um, and you know, that's sort of separate. And then you have the whole other world who, for the most part, there's this, it's called, uh, let me remember the Latin phrase, mater semper certa est, which is the mother is always certain. And what that is, it's the Roman law principle. Um, and obviously, Alan, I'm preaching to the choir here because I know that you, you know this. But anyway, the idea being that um, before assisted reproductive technology and surrogacy, when a woman gave birth to a baby, Obviously, she was the mother. I mean, there was no question. But then as you have, you know, uh, IVF and women were able to, you know, um, you know, 
have donor embryos uh, and they could give birth and mother, you know, those children or surrogates who are gestational carriers who, you know, gave birth to children who, you know, who were either the intended mother's biological children or a, an egg donor. The mother wasn't always certain, um, but the laws in the rest of the world never kind of kept up with that. And so in most countries, um, children who are born via surrogacy uh, are legally considered to be the children of the person that gave birth to them. So for example, in the UK where I live, we had to go through a whole proce process, sorry, being British there, process, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> called a parental order where we had to, because I'm a dual national, we had to get a parental order um, to get birth certificates for our kids. And they considered, um, until the parental order came through, which was a whole you know, other long aspect of our surrogacy story, um, that Julie and her husband in Illinois were considered the legal parents of our children. So that's kind of how it is. And so this is why there are lots of parentage issues and lots of conversations around countries unilaterally kind of updating their surrogacy laws, but also um, some multilateral organizations that are looking at having these conversations about, you know, um, parentage and, you know, because some children end up, unfortunately, stateless in some surrogacy arrangements. And so that's, I don't know. It if happens that's in the long... U.S. too. So Yeah, that's a great point. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So it's sort of, um, it's, it's um, yeah, it's a very convoluted, but I guess I would just say that the U.S. is very different. And a lot of people that I've well, interviewed. It, I will say it doesn't happen in the U.S. because if you're born in the U.S., you automatically yeah. have U.S. Are not stateless. That's true. That's, I guess <laughs> yeah. the situation was they were deemed an orphan. They were parentless, I guess, by that one specific court yeah that's true that terrible judge yes yeah um but uh yeah so it's sort of um it's just fascinating you know how 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 different it is and i mean you know um but you know interestingly a lot of countries are realizing and i think maybe you know ellen you might have even said this to me that you know in law law always lags behind social changes and technology and so therefore a lot of countries are sort of going and saying I think Hold Ruth Bader. I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it. You know, oh, did <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Ellen Trackman? I don't know. I, after her death, I watched that movie um, on the basis of sex like multiple times, like in my tears. And there's like this moment where she's like radical social change because like the government's trying to say oh you're trying to do radical social change it's like that social change has already happened the mere fact that i'm standing before you as a woman is like oh it's true and it's a lot of <laughs> lag behind right yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah and that's you know something that um so i mean for example in the uk um which was one of the first countries to sort of have surrogacy laws put on the books back in the mid 80s they are, uh, in 2018, the Law Commission of, well, it's so typically British. So there's the Law Commission of England and Wales and the Scottish Law Commission. But together, they started working on some policy reforms. Um, and they kind of, you know, for 18 months, were going around, um, you know, having open forums where people could come and talk about surrogacy. They met with all the different stakeholders from, you know, like feminist groups to, you know, surrogates, intended parents, etc. And so they are in the process of kind of figuring out what uh, you know, drawing up this this essentially draft legislation um, that they will present to Parliament sometime next year, um, and if Parliament agrees and they'll argue it out and whatever, then the UK will have um, new surrogacy law. Um, and what that looks like, you know, there's some speculation, but you know, so it's sort of interesting that countries are kind of going, oh, hold on a second, let's, you know, let's uh, see where we're we're going with what we've done in the past and and see how we can update it and make it sort of so it's everybody's um, sort of uh, part of, part of the, the conversation. 
And I, I mean, that conversation is still, I mean, it's not all going in one direction, right? It's still very multidimensional. I know I was yeah. surprised by this latest um, kind of scandal and surrogacy that this uh, Chinese celebrity yep. is being mm. rumored to have abandoned her children. And the news is that, that that's sparking like this big backlash against surrogacy, like, oh, surrogacy is so terrible. And I mean, from our our viewpoint, like, what are you talking about? Abandonment is terrible. It's not yeah. about yeah. the surrogacy. Right. Well, this is one of the things that I'm also going to touch on in the book is that I feel, and I, you know, this is like my last chapter, but, you know, I feel like in pop culture and in the media, you know, there are such bad stereotypes about surrogacy. You know, you've got like lifetime movies, you know, the sinister surrogate, the sorority surrogate, you know, where it's like the surrogates, like this, you know, woman who like wants to have an affair with the, you know, intended father and, you know, all this stuff, or you have films that, you know, don't quite you know, like, for example, Little Fires Everywhere, where there's like a surrogacy subplot, tra- traditional surrogacy subplot, which John Weltman from Circle, when I mentioned that to him, he lost his mind. He was like, that's not surrogacy. What are you talking about? But, you know, so I think that there's, you know, and there was a BBC series last year called The Nest, which was about a Scottish couple who went to Ukraine with their surrogate. And it was this whole, you know, so I feel like the stories that are told sort of in films and in books like The Farm, you know, while they capture people's attention, they're not obviously giving the full story. And I think with the media and as a journalist, you know, I'm the the first person to defend, you know, journalism and, and the press. But, you know, I do think that, you know, some of these sensationalized stories, I'm not saying sensationalized, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, these so- stories where surrogacy goes wrong and they should be covered and they should be discussed and, you know, whatever, but they, they're not nuanced enough to say, but this is one case out of thousands of surrogacy stories that are you know, right. happy endings and essentially, which are, which are boring, boring, right? All, yeah, the, right. all the ones exactly. that go smoothly and the surrogate was treated well and was happy yeah. to do it and was fulfilled right. to help someone have a family and the family is doing great, like ugh, snooze fest, right? Exactly. Right. And it's funny, this morning I was doing an interview with um, uh, a, a journalist from the Times, who the London Times, who wrote an article in the in their Saturday supplement about uh, his surrogacy journey with his husband. They did it here in the UK. We talked a lot about this and about, you know, sort of these, you know, how it's portrayed in the media and how, you know, and he was saying that the reason he wrote his piece was that he was like, I just wanted to present a story that was like positive. Like there was no scandal, there was no drama. And he's like, that's why I did it. So you can say, hey, you know, we can counterbalance these horrible stories by saying, you know, but mostly it just, it's, it's really just, you know, not boring because it's not boring for the person going through it, but (laughs) it's, you know, just kind of like, and the happy ending is my kids are downstairs eating Play-Doh, you know, like. (laughs) Yes. So So, from all your research, is there anything that really shocked or surprised you as you're interviewing different specialists and those going through this? Um, I mean, there've been a couple of things that I found really interesting. I mean, one of the things that I'm really intrigued by is that there are two multilateral organizations that are looking at um, surrogacy from a global perspective. So there's the Hague uh, Conference on Private International Law, the HCCH, and they're the ones who did the 1993 Hague Convention on Adoption. And they um, have been looking for the last several years about, you know, do they create some sort of convention on surrogacy? Um, And in the end, you know, from what I understand, it's too controversial to do an actual convention on surrogacy because a lot of countries just wouldn't sign up to it. And, you know, it would just be, you know, so I think what they're doing is they're kind of, you know, broadening it out. So it would be possibly a convention on 
parentage um, and then maybe a protocol on surrogacy. But, you know, it's sort of interesting. I found I find and I'm, you know, have no legal background, but I think a lot of these stories of, you know, couples where, you know, they go to one country and, you know, they, they think, you know, they'll have a child and they'll bring it back home and everything will be fine. And then, you know, there are these, you know, for whatever reason, that doesn't happen. You know, there was a, a case where um, a British couple, they worked with a Ukrainian surrogate. She had twins in Ukraine. You know, when you, you have, when a surrogate gives birth, um, you know, they don't automatically get Ukrainian citizenship. They were going to bring the kids back to the UK and the UK was like, so anyway, long story short, parentage and statelessness is very interesting to me. And that's what the HCCH has been kind of trying to and figure sorry, out what we're going to do. But I finished that story. So what happened to oh, the child? No. So what happened? So in the end, so in the end, so the, the twins were stuck in Ukraine um, yeah. and they, um, you know, after doing, you know, lots of, you know, ins and outs and backs and forth, they were able to bring the kids back to the UK. And, okay. you know, and this is one of the reasons yeah. why the UK wants to change their laws is that, you know, a lot of high court judges, you know, have realized that the laws here, you know, they really have to kind of bend the law to kind of, you know, they don't want to leave children stateless. Right. They don't want so, to leave children. So in the best interest you know, of the child, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think that that, but yeah, so I think that's very interesting. And also the International Social Services, which is another multilateral organization, they've been working on principles um, around surrogacy that would, you know, who knows who would, uh, they're not sure where those would sit, if UNICEF would sort of apply them or another UN organization, but Principles, they're focused on child's rights. And so the idea of, you know, how do you make surrogacy so that, you know, all the stakeholders um, are represented, but that the children in the end are, um, you know, not in a situation where they're, you know, stateless and they're with, you know, so it's, it's all, and I think, you know, these conversations around trafficking and, you know, all of these, you know, I find those interesting and, you know, um, yeah, so it's sort of all all of those kinds of cases, and sort of what happened in, in places like India and, and Thailand, um, you know, where surrogates, um, you know, there was there was exploit. I don't want to use exploit. There were problems, and yeah. um, you know, and I think that sorry, as I'm babbling here, but I think one of the most other things that's really interesting to me is that Heather Jacobson, who's a sociologist at the University of Texas in Arlington, um, when I interviewed her, she said, you know, we shouldn't call it just surrogacy. We should call it surrogacies because how surrogacy is in the U.S. or the U.K. or Israel is really different than surrogacy in Russia or in, um, you know, Thailand or in Mexico. And I think that's very true. And I think that, you know, I've spoken to. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've, you know, the motivations and, and who surrogates are in the U.S. and Israel you know, these women right. were really empowered as, and as well as that relationship. I mean, I yes, think part of yes. like this, like Chinese outrage is like, oh, this woman across the country, you know, you're using her. Well, here it's like this relationship for yes. the, for many, many people that like, yes, someone is helping you, but you're like forming this like relationship through yes. the process. And, um, you know, the, hopefully ultimately everyone's very happy with. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, I don't want to sort of judge, but I mean, I don't think personally, I mean, I know personally, I wouldn't have been comfortable doing surrogacy in a country where I didn't have a relationship with a surrogate, you know, and in places like Ukraine, Russia, you know, it it happened in India and Thailand, you know, um, and partially it had to do with sort of cultural issues, but also just agencies wanted to kind of control the situation to a certain extent. You know, a lot of intended parents, you know, met their surrogates, you know, like the day the children were being born. And like, for me, I find it fascinating, but I couldn't 
have done that myself, you know, because I, I absolutely. yeah. And some of our interviews, so we had an interview with Carolyn Topelson who went to Mexico and she had been told they were not permitted direct contact. And mm-hmm. partially that was like to protect her that a surrogate carrying her child could suddenly like say, Oh, give me $10,000 more yep. or something because yep. you're so held hostage by someone carrying your child, but really vice yep. versa too. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know for sure. And I think that that's, you know, and I've, and, and I've, you know, definitely discovered that, that, you know, like in India, when cross-border surrogacy was still happening, you know, um, sometimes it was that the surrogates, you know, didn't want to, you know, have relationships with the IPs, but sometimes it was agencies sort of saying, you know, listen, I don't think this is good because who knows how, you know, they might tell you some story, you know, you don't know how it can go. Um, but yeah, I found that all really fascinating. And also just, you know, who surrogates are. I mean, like, I especially was interested in reading about surrogacy in Israel because, you know, and I spoke to one Israeli surrogate and if other surrogates are like her, like, man, those women are awesome. I mean, they are like, watch out, they're going to change the world. So, I mean, that was really fun. It's to sort of really, you know, meet some, you know, meet some of these women doing interviews and just being like, whoa, these are super empowered, awesome women who know exactly what they've been involved in. And they, you know, wanted to help out families and they love being pregnant. And like, they just really believe that, you know, in, in what surrogacy can can do not just for the intended parents, but what they got out of it for themselves as well. I'm babbling, but that's, yeah. <laughs> we we are big supporters of that and definitely have seen that. I, I always laugh because obviously we have a very like microcosm of what we experience here in the United States and I'm located mm-hmm. specifically in Colorado, but, um, but yeah, this like fear internationally exploitation. And what we see when I'm meeting with gestational carriers or like seeing them describe why they want to do this, it's always like this very empowered woman who's like, yeah, no, I, I told my, my spouse, like, this is what I'm doing. And I, you know, you're going to yeah. support me. And like very, yeah. they always not the the shrinking violet is the someone who has a very strong personality and knows themselves very well and what they want to do. Yeah. And how they articulate it. I mean, I've, you know, um, they all have this really wonderful, I mean, they're definitely common denominators, right? Like a lot of them love being pregnant. A lot of them, you know, wanted to be pregnant again, but didn't want to have kids. And also just the, this idea of really wanting to help other people expand their families because they knew how important motherhood was to them. And Ellie Tiemann, who's an Israeli anthropologist, who's written a lot about, you know, uh, surrogacy in Israel, she calls this concept, you know, birthing the mother. And I think it's such a beautiful concept that, you know, surrogates don't just give birth to children. I mean, not just, but I mean, they give birth to children and, and it, but they also give birth to mothers. I mean, Julie and I, I told this to our surrogate, you know, you gave birth to me as a mom. And that's like the most beautiful thing. Like, I mean, you helped me become a mother. And that is, you know, just such a incredible, you know, how do you, how, how do you articulate that except to say what a fantastic thing to have done for someone else, you know? Um, yeah. So tell us about your book. What's your working title? When can we eagerly expect us to read it? (laughs) Yep. So the working title is how I became your mother. Um, uh, my global surrogacy journey. Um, and I am, have two chapters left that I have to write. My agent uh, has kind of put it out to some publishers. And so we're hopefully going to get some good feelers back. Um, And, you know, I, it's, again, as I said, it sort of takes my story and kind of, you know, intermingles my story with a lot of, you know, issues that, that I've looked into, you know, from, you know, ethical uh, debates that, you know, feminists have on both sides of the argument to, again, I'll go back to my 
subject of my favorite state, Michigan, you know, the role that my state played, um, you know, the history. And that was what was interesting to me, actually. One of the most fun things for me to find out was, you know, how much a role my state played in surrogacy globally, you know, because it was the first place where you had the first gestational birth, the first court that's, that said that a gestational, uh, that, sorry, that an intended mother was the, the parent of a child, not the gestational carrier. It was the first state where you had surrogacy contracts for traditional surrogates. So I mean, it was really, and you know, so that was really fun for me. Um, fun. I don't know if that's the right word. Interesting for me to see the role that my state played. And unfortunately, as we were talking about earlier, I think it's, it, it is the last state where surrogacy is still illegal, unfortunately. And so I do hope that at some point that will, that will change, but um, that's been really interesting too. So. Well, hopefully we'll be reporting a change soon. I know many people are, are hoping to improve the, the situation in Michigan. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I feel like we are very excited to, be able to get your book out there and promote it. I think it's going to be a very fascinating look at global surrogacy. And I think you're right. There just isn't that resource out there right now. And so that you're providing this amazing service to, to put it all together into one, one book explaining what the situation is across the, across the world. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's funny, I've had my mom read it and, you know, I, she's, she's a journalist as well. And so I sort of said, you know, like, what did you think of the chapters, you know, whatever. And she's like, it's a great book, but you can't sit down and do it in one reading. You know, she's like, it's a lot. You have a, you, you put a lot in there. And so it was kind of funny. She's like, I had to like, go have a tea I, break and go back to it. No, I read it in one reading. That's it. I <laughs> sat down and all at once. Yeah. Oh, well, see. <laughs> well, that's good. That's, I will tell my I mom I couldn't that. stop. I, yeah. I couldn't put it down. I had to. Uh, well, that's such a great, I love that. Great review. So. <laughs> yeah. Right? No, right. it's from the back of the book. Right. Yeah, and put it down. <laughs> good, 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 good. I hope other people will feel the same way. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you again for joining us, and um, we're looking forward to to seeing the book and keeping in touch. Thank you. I look forward to to being you know keeping in touch with you guys, and uh, thanks so much for what you guys are doing because it's such a great resource. And um, yeah, it's just it's it's great. Thank you guys very much. Thank you to Janan Brunel for joining us. And um, aside from sharing this interview and writing this amazing book, she's also been connecting us with some other guests that show up in her book and now yes. able to be featured on our podcast. So we are incredibly grateful to her. She has been so much fun to talk to so many times. I, I know you guys don't get to hear all the background sometimes, but we've, we really enjoyed getting to know her. So thank you, Janan. We really appreciate you. Um, and speaking of things that we appreciate and people we appreciate, we always appreciate when people leave us a review on iTunes um, and also when people reach out to us. So you can leave us a message at 303-997-1903. And as we expand our international reach, uh, that is a U.S. number. So <laughs> everybody is aware. Yes. Um, you could also, it doesn't matter where you are in the United States, you can send us a message through our website. Um, and you can also purchase merchandise. I I imagine they probably would ship internationally, oh, right? I hope so. Please, I didn't check. Please, please try it. Whatever country you're in, um, go on IWantToPutABaby.com. Check out the merch page. Um, buy a new phone case with a sperm with headphones on or a new shirt. And let us yes. know how the shipping goes internationally. We'd appreciate that. Yeah, exactly. We'll give you a shout out if you do. So <laughs> um, huge, huge thank you to our team, as always, to Amanda, to Tyler, and to Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who does incredible things for us. And thank you to you for listening. We appreciate you all. Bye.